This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to the Knowledge at Wharton podcast. I'm senior editor Deborah Yao, and it is my privilege to welcome Amias Garrity, a partner at QED Investors, which is an is an early stage venture capital firm based in Alexandria, Virginia, that focuses on the financial services sector. Before joining QED, he was the acting assistant secretary for financial institutions at the Treasury Department under President Obama. And he was also the deputy assistant secretary for the Financial Stability Oversight Council, or FSOC, which was established by the Dodd-Frank Act. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. My pleasure. It's great to be here. What made you decide to leave government service to join QED? Well, I was a political appointee, so... Uh, I was asked for my resignation and I submitted it. Um, so the way it works in government is that the outgoing president actually requests the resignation letters from all the uh, political appointees. And so my resignation letter was uh, effective on noon on Inauguration Day. And then I was really uh, took some time off. I had been a management consultant before. And for me, the key question was, what's the most interesting and exciting thing that I could do? Naturally, there's a lot of excitement around uh, fintech, and so a lot of the conversations ended up driving me there, even though when I started my job search, I wasn't sure that that was where I was going to be headed. And I met the QED folks uh, around March, so I met them two months after I left, and they had simultaneously gotten interested in a number of themes that they thought I could help them with. So they got interested, they were interested in this idea of reg tech, they were interested in investing in infrastructure layers in software companies, not just tech-enabled providers of financial services. And it so happened that the management consulting firm that I had been at, Oliver Wyman, was actually a successor firm to the management consulting firm where Nigel Morris, the founder of QED and the co-founder of Capital One, had started his career at SBA. And so we shared that history, and he thought that I might be able to help. And so two years later, I'm doing my best. So your firm focuses on investing in the financial services sector. What areas in particular are you most interested in and why? So as a firm, we're pretty broad-based. You know, other firms might have a sole partner or maybe two partners focused on financial services. We have 12. And we, most of our investing is in the U.S., in the U.K., and in Latin America, particularly Brazil and Mexico. So we do have the ability to cover really broad portions of the fintech ecosystem. And one of the ways that we organize ourselves is that we try to be very hypothesis-driven. So there are different areas of expertise that we have. We're obviously all constantly learning new things. And given that, we start to develop hypotheses about areas that we're most interested in. And as companies come in or as we reach out, we usually have a good sense of which of the partners at QED should be the one to chase this opportunity or to evaluate whether it's the right opportunity for us to partner. So I would say personally, I spend a lot of time now focused on this idea of operational transformation, digital transformation inside of financial services and where technology is going to make a difference there. I also spend a lot of time looking at mortgage and alternative home equity, uh, different things in the transformation and how people think about owning and renting 
uh, property. And so those are probably the two biggest areas. Uh, but we're always looking opportunistically at, at exciting things that we haven't thought of. So what are some of the hottest fintech trends that you're seeing? And also, what are some of the not-so-hot trends? <laughs> Well, I think one of the really interesting things that we're seeing in fintech is that it's easier than ever to build a consumer-facing fintech company. And that has pretty interesting implications. Uh, One of the implications is that you've seen some really, really fast-growing consumer-oriented fintech companies that are generating really high valuations really fast. And the pressure on those from a competitive perspective is really high. So that's both exciting but also a little scary given how fast these companies are growing. And and as an investor, you always want to make sure that your companies are growing fast and sustainably. You're trying to... The, the fintech companies succeed, startup companies succeed, not just when they grow fast, but when, also, when they create great companies. And so when people grow too fast as board members or as investors, you always want to make sure that you're helping them grow into a great company, not just a big company or a fast-growing company or a company with a, a valuation that's going up as opposed to a revenue stream and a sustainable business model that's going up. So, so that's a, one thing that we're seeing a lot of. The other thing that, that is really interesting as an implication of this is that there are a lot of infrastructure-oriented companies that are gaining a lot of uh, value and, and becoming more and more interesting. You know, people sometimes call it the middleware for fintech, right? How do you interface between a new fintech that's going to serve small businesses or consumers and the bank that needs to provide deposit or payment services, things like that. And so that's another really interesting theme that we're seeing. And we also see that in in other countries as well. Um, One of, I would say, the themes that we have not made any investments in but are actively exploring is, will that play out in Latin America? And if so, can we play a role in helping companies create that Latin America version of these fintech infrastructure or financial services infrastructure players that are more modern. So you're seeing a lot of applications like, for example, blockchain in these startups? So honestly, not. Um, So I would say that blockchain is in a kind of a classic hype cycle where people got very excited. Blockchain was going to solve everything, then very disappointed. And now we're getting to a place where for the first time ever I had a, a customer of a blockchain software company refer that company to us and say, this is a company, they're really building cool things for us that are going to help our business. You should talk to them. That, that's only happened to me once now, but that's, a, that's an interesting maturation. I would say when I get pitched a blockchain company or a company that uses blockchain, I tend to let them go for five or 10 minutes. And then I say to them, why don't you repeat your pitch without using the word blockchain? Because the truth is, I'm not technical enough to know whether blockchain is the perfect data architecture for any given function. In fact, most of the time that we do some technical due diligence and we talk to friends and customers, I don't second guess the database architecture choices or the technical infrastructure choices that my companies are making. I try to guide them in making good choices, but not at the level of technicality that would say, oh, blockchain will never work for this, or you should really use you know, event-based architecture for that. And so when I'm hearing companies pitch me, I often get them to focus on what's the business problem you're solving. And then if you can tell me that actually you believe, because you're a technical expert, that blockchain is the best way to help you solve that business problem, I'm certainly not against uh, looking at companies like that, but I think oftentimes the 
architectural and technological choices overwhelm the focus on the business problem. And I think that's starting to sort itself out and people are getting a lot more focused on those functional business models, which what is the problem you're solving and how are you solving it? So in other words, you're saying that blockchain is not necessary for every single um, maybe database-oriented company or startup. Yeah, well, it's certainly not necessary. Um, one thing that we know, just at even even I know, is that at the level of the computer science, a decentralized architecture with any consensus mechanism will be slower than a centralized architecture. That's just kind of if you have one entity making one step and one entity making ten steps, the entity making two ten steps will be slower um, for 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 just the basics of of the the database. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't really uh, large potential benefits. Uh, Embedded cryptography being an embedded benefit, uh, programmable uh, database lines. So some of that is just about using more modern features. Some of that is embedded in the blockchain. Certainly, there's the embedded audit trail feature that a lot of people get excited about. So I think there are a lot of things that are reasons to be excited about the blockchain applications, although I tend to isolate them from a functional perspective and say, oh, well, embedded cryptography, that sounds great. Why does that add value in this business process? Or um, a smart contract, well, why does that add value? Let's focus on that rather than on whether those two things are tied together into a blockchain. Do you think that it probably maybe makes more sense for big companies to um, to use the blockchain application maybe on a permission basis rather than maybe startups going in and saying, we want to decentralize, we want smart contracts, we want X, Y, Z, and maybe that doesn't make as much sense. I think it, I think it really depends. I do think that the for financial services applications, it is much more likely that where it works, it will work on a permissioned consortium basis first. Um, I do think there's, you know, what's the most successful blockchain project in history so far? It's Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is a decentralized, permissionless, consumer-oriented financial services application. So in that sense, that would certainly contradict my thesis uh, that that we'll get really sustained value um, in permission consortium base before we get the other. Um, but ultimately, all of these blockchain-oriented businesses have at their heart an argument about networks. And when you have an argument about networks, at your heart, you're talking about a collective action problem. Now, I think we both know that if you solve a collective action problem, you will create value. So then the question is, how does any given user uh, interface design, database architecture, or functional insight allow you to solve a collective action problem and get a large number of disparate groups to work together on a common purpose? Um, That's a central problem in business history. And certainly many of the blockchain projects that we see are making an argument about why their particular solution will solve those collective action problems. But I think in my view, the real value comes from whether that collective action problem gets solved, not by any particular choice in the technology architecture. How do you feel about cryptocurrencies now that you mentioned Bitcoin? And maybe you can distinguish between Bitcoin and, and things like Libra, which is you know centralized and permissioned, at least in the beginning. Yeah, so I'm pretty bearish on, on cryptocurrencies. Uh, one of the questions that I often ask people is, when's the last time you transacted in yen? Because... Uh, 
I can tell you right now that if I had $100 million in yen, I could liquidate it into dollars tomorrow and not move the market. But that still doesn't give me any particular incentive as a person who lives and works in Washington, D.C. and travels mostly when I travel internationally to London to transact in yen. And by the way, many of the businesses that I interact with would be glad to transact in yen. So the idea that we need another currency over and above the currency that we have um, I think is still a little bit unproven. Most of the time that you see people getting excited about Bitcoin, it's either for speculative purposes or there's some thing going on in their life. Perhaps it's, you know, international drug trafficking. Perhaps it's simply distrust in their home home country government that means that they, they fundamentally distrust the international system of finance or the local system of finance to which they have access. I think those are the major tailwinds behind uh, Bitcoin's rise. But I think for most applications that I'm interested in or in both for my personal life and in companies that I might invest in, while I have um, real sympathy for the people of Venezuela, for example, and I can understand why as a Venezuelan, I would really want to move money into Bitcoin if I could. Um, it's still true that that's a very difficult thing for a venture capital firm to invest in because every financial transaction that goes into and out of Venezuela is going to be subject to a very complicated legal regime that will be litigated in courts as um, different parties fight for control of that country and as sanctions and other uh, regimes take place. So I think as a as a firm that takes compliance very seriously, that takes you know, existing laws very seriously. It's hard for us to be super long on the question of cryptocurrencies. I will say that personally, I am uh, flat Bitcoin. I own none, uh, but I'm theoretically short. I don't think that the value that we've seen there is going to sustain. I think there will be um, cryptocurrencies that are truly anonymous that will become more valuable than Bitcoin over time for the very purposes that have driven Bitcoin's value so far. Uh, but it's it's very early. It's very hard to tell how those things will work out. And as an investment firm, uh, we find that it's not really worth our time to, to chase those ideas. So putting on your regulator hat for a second, um, do you think that cryptocurrencies is a, are a destabilizing force in the financial system? Or do you think that it's imperfect, but it is the future of money? So I really don't think it's the future of money. I, I don't think that insights around database architecture change the fact that money is fundamentally a project of, of states and it's a project of governments. So the ultimate thing that happens, the ultimate thing that gives a dollar value is the fact that if you conduct economic activity inside of the United States, you incur tax liability in the United States. And those tax liabilities are denominated in dollars. And failure to pay those tax liabilities will land an actual physical human being in an actual physical jail. There's nothing digital or made up about that value chain. It's a little bit attenuated. But that is the underlying power of the dollar is the fact that there's a ton of economic activity in the United States and the economic activity of the United States is fundamentally governed by U.S. law. So that's how money works and has worked in history. Now, it's possible, certainly there are many people betting on this, that other power arrangements 
uh, could facilitate money. But in the history of the world as we know it, uh, monetary arrangements are features of uh, state power, not not primarily features of of commercial power. And so, so I think that's why I don't think it's the the future of money. I don't think that uh, Bitcoin or anything else is likely to sever that. Um, so, so that's that's on on the one hand. I think that there's still um, lots of interesting things that can happen. Um, there will be lots of people who will experiment, and I think that there's uh, there's lots of room to run. But in terms of what what we think of as money, people forget often the link to state power, and state power is really important. So going back to your role as a venture capitalist, what qualities do you look for in startups to invest in? And if you can name some of the ones you've invested in that you particularly like. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's a there's an adage in, in, in venture, which is, you know, team and TAM, a great team with a big market. Uh, I would say that at QED, we tend to be a little bit more hypothesis-driven. Uh, we tend to start from the... Th- the, the idea that the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. So we can already know today what some of the big trends are that are going to play out over three and four and five years. And we try to think about that as the world that we can envision and then really try to think about what are the types of companies that are likely to succeed in that world and then try and back great teams that are pursuing that vision. My partner, Matt Burton, often says... Uh, when he's coaching founders, you can't convince anyone of anything. What you're doing when you're looking for funding as a founder is you're trying to find a partner who basically already agrees with you, who already shares the vision that you share. Now, sometimes that person hasn't articulated it in their head yet. And so you can help crystallize a set of thoughts that, that make sense to them. But the idea that you have to persuade someone to give you money rather than find someone who's going to be a great partner, I think often gets uh, founders into uh, the wrong uh, pattern. Uh, and so we often coach our founders to, to look for that partner. And similarly, as investors, we try to be very frank with someone. If we don't think their idea is going to work, we don't want them to waste their time trying to convince us of that. And so we try to find people who have a vision of what the future is going to be like and why their company really can become an iconic company in that, in that, in that future. And that's a, it's a difficult challenge because ultimately we tend to invest in companies when they might have 10 or 20 or 30 people and you know, maybe $1 million in revenue, often less, sometimes a bit more. And so the idea that any one of those companies is actually going to be a company with $100 million in revenue in five years, it's just the, the chances are very small. But we try to look for teams that have uh, a great team following a, a vision that makes sense with the future that we think is starting to emerge. I've heard you say at a conference uh, panel that sometimes you, you try to look for problems that need solving, and sometimes there isn't a business or a startup that's that's doing that. And you sometimes approach people and say, hey, why don't you start this business? Are you still doing that? And how successful have you been? Yeah. So, so we've done that. Um, we've done that a bunch and it's an interesting challenge. In fact, so I mentioned my, my, my partner, Matt Burton, who, who leads that practice for us. So we have a, a partner dedicated to this practice of trying to find match ideas and founders 
and then giving them support and guidance to get there. So I'll, I'll give a maybe the best example of this recently is uh, just over a year ago, we started a company called WageStream in the UK. And we saw in the US a number of companies that were starting to give people pay advances on earned wages. And this is a just a transformative benefit relative to payday lending. So payday lending has the idea that because you receive a regular wage, I can give you a loan today. The payroll advance idea is the wages that I'm going to advance to you are already legally yours. So this is not a credit relationship between the company and the consumer. This is a credit relationship fundamentally between the company and the business. And so the credit risk associated with that is dramatically lower, which means the price is dramatically lower, and really a, a, a powerful model that's starting to emerge, and there are a number of fast-growing companies in the United States. So in the UK, the situation is even worse, because in the US, predominantly, people get paid every two weeks. In the UK, predominantly, people get paid every month. And so... We thought this was an interesting idea. We found a CTO and a CEO. Um, we introduced them to each other. And we said, this is an idea that we've seen. People are just starting to do it in the U.S. We think there's a big opportunity in the U.K. What do you guys think? They got so excited by each other and by the idea that three or four or five weeks later, they were moving so fast, we were running up to catch with them and try and make sure that they would take our money. Um, and that company, uh, a year and a half later, is off to the races. They just raised a, a, a B round. Um, so, so they're really succeeding. And so that's a model that we love where you have a high conviction business model, people that you often know or certainly have high conviction about their talent, and you have a business model that really will um, benefit from speed. So that if you can take away the uncertainty of the first round of funding or even the first two rounds of funding, you can have a transformative impact about that company's ability to get to market and to become a dominant player in that market. And so that's an example with WageStream where we were just so uh, excited about the opportunity and loved the team and they ended up loving each other and they'll be, they're building a great company in London right now. That's so in interesting. Um, uh, last fall, you also mentioned something that I found very intriguing you said that uh, at, at this is at the American Enterprise Institute uh, conference. You said that software is eating the world and that the most important financial stability risk we face is cybersecurity. And you further said that we are not sociologically prepared for the severity of cybersecurity risks we face if we had the cybersecurity equivalent of the financial crisis of 2008. Can you explain what you meant and do you still believe this is the case today? Yeah, I, I really do. I think the thing to highlight there is the idea that we are not really prepared for the potential there. So most people, when they think about cybersecurity in their daily lives, um, go to things like data breaches. But data breaches are actually not particularly material in terms of what could happen. Now, partly this is because we have a financial system that in the main, has pretty good insurance against the average data breach. So if your credit card information is stolen, most consumers will find that they will get a new credit card and that any fraudulent purchases that have been made in their name are do not inure to their disbenefit. So they're, they're, they're protected from that kind of fraudulent purchase. Now, there are, of course, real 
uh, problems associated with with identity theft. Um, and depending on the severity of any particular identity theft case, you can have you know really disruptive elements in your life. But if you compare that to a data integrity attack, right, where we literally don't even know who owes what to whom, that is just very, very different in terms of the systems, the protections, and the preparation that we have as a society to prepare for an event like that. And so this, I think, is really scary. I think it's a a tremendous financial stability risk. And it's something that I know people in in all the regulatory um, bodies are very focused on. But it's also not clear what the right answer is. So there's a lot of effort on information sharing. There's a lot of effort on cross-industry cooperation. There's a lot of effort on trying to game out what could happen. Industry has been very cooperative. There's also a lot of effort on making sure that both small entities and large entities are engaged. But the idea that, um, as you can sometimes have in, you know, say our response to the financial crisis, we put a lot of policy in place to respond to that. I think we've made the financial system uh, much stronger than it was. But there was an overriding idea there. The overriding idea was capital. The overriding idea was that if you really have financial reserves against the risks that you take, you will be better off. There are other things too, but that was the overriding idea. And I think with cyber, we don't have um, as strong a grasp on what that overriding idea might be that that could actually prevent uh, a real catastrophic cyber incident. So, so that's why I think everyone should be worried about it. And unfortunately, I'm not uh, in a position to, to solve that problem. Uh, but I think it's an important thing to keep on people's minds, and I think there are a lot of uh, really smart computer scientists and and um, both inside and outside of government, inside and outside of the financial system, who are focused on this. And and I just want everyone who is in the financial system to be uh, you know keeping their eye on those efforts and continuing to cheerlead and try and prompt new ideas and questions so that we get closer and closer to better and better answers there. So that's probably one of the issues you guys tackled on FSOC. Right. Um, what? Um, so, how does the financial system look today versus way back when? When you know you worked for Timothy Geithner as Treasury Secretary, and you were trying to save the U.S. financial system uh, post Dodd Frank, despite some of the rollbacks under uh, President Trump, uh, are we safer today? So, I think the financial system is all in a much stronger position today than it was. Um, the I think if you if you think through what happened in the crisis, and there's a lot of criticism of Dodd Frank, uh, a lot of it saying, "Oh, it's too complex," or this and that. Um, here's the reality: the reality is the financial system is very complex. Financial entities are very complex, and the things that went wrong in the crisis were very complex. So I, I understand the um, desire to want a silver bullet. Um, in in your policy response, but I think I think that's implausible, and it was certainly implausible at the time in the U.S. political system. So, I think if if you think about what Dodd Frank did, Dodd Frank took a very clear look at what was happening and what had happened in the crisis, and tried to set up a system where, in the main, four big things were changed. So, the first big thing that was changed is that. We needed to have a way for non-banks to fail that wasn't bankruptcy and wasn't catastrophic for the financial system. So that's number one. Number two, you had to have a way where the financial perimeter of regulation 
was more flexible because there had been a lot of playing to put lots of risk um, outside of that oversight perimeter. And so that's one of the big uh, things that the FSOC did. The thing that you need to do is you needed to put uh, a real light and much more conservative safeguards in around derivatives and securitization. Both of those mostly done. And then the fourth thing is you needed to put an actual regulator that was focused on consumer well-being in the financial services. So all four of those things were done. I think if you if you add to that the capital regulations that came out, partly which were in Dodd-Frank, but though made main, mainly they were in the organic authority of the banking regulators already, um, you see a much safer and stronger financial system. At the same time, I do think that the deregulatory wave that we're under right now is more severe than people appreciate, partly because it's gone a little bit slower, partly because... It is happening um, piece by piece instead of one, you know, bombastic regulator like we were seeing in the EPA or one big rollback in the law. But I think if you pull together the set of things that are happening, let's just give some some of the smaller examples. So the Financial Stability Oversight Council put out new guidelines, um, which they are looking to finalize. And those guidelines make it functionally impossible to flex the perimeter of the system. Because the, if you follow those guidelines, it will be functionally impossible to designate any non-bank for Federal Reserve supervision. So I just said that's one of the big four things. And through just a series of interpretive guidance, they are going to functionally shelve that authority. I think that's a mistake. Um, another example, you just saw rules on the Volcker rule uh, finalized. Look, I think there was a lot of complaint about the complexity of the Volcker rule. But at the same time, you could try to simplify the Volcker rule. You could try to make it less strict. They did both. And the, that's natural because the, easy, the easiest way to make it simpler is to make it less strict. And that's what they did. And they did it in a pretty significant way. Um, and then I think also if you look at decisions like um, there was a court case. So in the securitization rules, you know, a lot of people have talked about the collateralized loan obligation market. It's one of the biggest and fastest growing uh, fixed income asset classes. Under the Dodd-Frank rules that were finalized, the people who organized and managed CLOs would have been required to hold, retain risk under, as if they were a securitization, and I think arguably they should have been. Um, they won a district court case that said they shouldn't be subject to those rules, and the Trump administration declined to appeal that decision. And so if you just take a, a, a basic look at that, you say, well, this is the fastest growing, largest emergent fixed income asset class, and we have just removed the Dodd-Frank rule that was designed to try and put some conservative standards on new, fast-growing, structured fixed income asset classes. And so I think those are there, there's a set of things that are happening which are um, a little more diffuse and a little more under the radar, but which are pretty severe from a deregulation perspective. Well, talking about banks and bank regulators, what do you think about fintech companies applying for the national bank charter that the OCC is providing? I, I think it really remains to be seen what's going to happen here. The one thing that I think is slightly more promising is, and I often give this advice to, to people who are interested, which is if you're going to become a bank, you might as well become a bank. Um, and I think that the OC fin OCC fintech charter is an effort to, you know, create something that's not quite fish or fowl. Um, so it would be a national lending license. It's unclear what it would mean from a payment systems perspective. Um, you know, obviously, 
there's a, a big debate about, about how we should treat industrial loan companies. Um, I tend to think that, uh, you know, there's there's a, a line between banking and commerce that is worth policing. Uh, but I think that the best way to see innovation in banking, if an innovative company wants to be a bank, they should really embrace the idea that they want to be a bank. And that means taking deposits and making loans or taking deposits and providing other financial services. And there's a set of regulations that come along with that and there's a set of standards that come along with that. But I think that's the the right way to do it is to walk through the front door rather than to try and come along the back. Now, I think there will be others who see value in the, the fintech charter that the OCC is is trying to put together. And I think it's too early to tell what uh, what the outcome will be there, partly because there's still litigation and partly because we just haven't seen anyone um, publicly apply or, or be granted one. So we don't really know the shape of what that fintech charter looks like. But, um, you know, we have a long history of banking regulation in here. There's some pretty special things about being a bank in the U.S. system. And um, I think that companies who want to have access to those special rights and privileges, um, you know, it's worth at least knocking on the front door and inquiring whether uh, that's right for you or your company. How about partnerships? Because we've seen a lot of those go on between fintech companies and, you know, incumbent banks, especially community banks. Yeah, I I think that there's a lot of room for value in partnerships. Uh, We often joke that uh, the end point for any fintech is to become a bank, be bought by a bank, or find a sustainable business partnering with banks. And certainly that third category, we've seen more of than either of the first two categories. So uh, we think there's a lot of room. Banks have tremendous advantages in terms of cost of funding, tremendous advantages in terms of risk and compliance controls. And there's a lot uh, to be gained in terms of user experience, uh, nimbleness, ability to design products that that are new and really fit the lives of consumers or small businesses. And I think that there's a lot of value to be gained from putting those two things together. And partnerships can be a really valuable way to do that. That is a place where um, the regulation and the oversight uh, continues to be done in a pretty traditional way. They think of that as these are third-party uh, you know, vendor relationships. There's a whole set of guidance around third-party due diligence and how you do vendor risk management and those sorts of things. I think those frameworks are okay as a starting point, but there will continue to need to be more attention to how do those evolve as more and more financial services uh, end up being provided through these partnerships. So if you had to tap your experience both in the public and private sectors, what do you think are things that the fintech firms are not getting about regulations and what are regulators not getting about fintech? So let's start with the first question. I was at a, a policy roundtable uh, with a bunch of fintechs globally. And I heard them uh, start to go around the room complaining about the regulations. And when it was my turn to comment, I sort of said, well, you know, I knew that you guys were trying to compete with the banks but I didn't realize that you were trying to compete with the banks in your complaining about the regulations. I think that there's a real opportunity uh, because one of the things, if you go back to that phrase that that uh, Andreessen Horowitz um, really pioneered of software eats the world, software is great at complexity. Humans are not great at complexity. And when people talk about the complexity of the regulations, that should be a competitive advantage for people who can build scalable systems uh, with software. 
to understand there's a series of choices that need to be made. There's a series of procedures that need to be put in place. If I ask any one person to keep track of all the procedures in their head, that's an almost impossible task. Humans are not great at long lists. But if I ask a computer program to keep track of a thousand tasks, it's straightforward. It's very simple. And so I think that many fintechs forget that actually doing things the right way building systems that are built to do things the right way should be a source of sustainable competitive advantage for them. And I think they could actually embrace that more. Uh, so, so that I think is, is what, um, what fintechs need to keep in mind when they think about regulation. The, I think in terms of what, what regulators think, um, I often think that, and, and I give this advice when I speak to regulators, is they have the right to focus on the big picture. And it's often quite interesting to track this innovation or that innovation, this interesting company, that interesting company. But regulators do have the ability to take a step back, to be a bit more patient, and to say, well, what's the big thing that's changing? Or I often say, don't focus on the frontier of the possible. Focus on the frontier of the easy, because the easy is where industry is really changing. So when you have machine learning or various you know, um, you know, advanced data science that's coming into the picture, don't focus on what the most advanced academics are doing. Focus instead on where is it actually hitting industry? Where is it actually making a difference? And I think if regulators can take that perspective, they'll, it'll be both narrow the universe for what they have to be keeping track of, and it will mean that they are keeping track of the things that are necessarily at the frontier of what's really being implemented. You know, I was talking to someone the other day who runs an AI-oriented company who said, we try to find problems that are solvable with the AI and machine learning of 2019, not 2025. And I think that's a perspective that the regulators really can take advantage of if um, they can turn some of the volume down uh, and really focus on the what's happening today, what's happening tomorrow and next year, and not what might happen in, uh, in 10 years. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.